Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that usually looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past, and will again soon. I'm Brian. I'm Sean. How are you today, Sean? I am full of the Christmas life force once again, and super as always. Yeah, that Christmas pudding that we had is still sitting in the uh, pit of your stomach, isn't it? Oh God, sure, I haven't gone to the toilet for days. If we, I just have to, this is a little insight into Broad Appeal HQ here, folks. Sean McGovern believes that a Christmas pudding, which is a, some sort of across-the-Atlantic thing that Americans have never heard of. Anyway, we bought one last year at Christmas, and then he kept saying, oh, it's fine, these things last forever, they're like plutonium, they have the longest half-life in the world. And then he insisted that we still eat it, even once we realized the sell-by date was last April. Brian, it is hermetically sealed. Yes, but now the fact that you've grown horns and a tail (laughs) would seem to indicate that the the good people at Little knew what they were doing. I got it in Aldi. (laughs) Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you are having a nice week in between Christmas and New Year. Always a lovely time, although this year has been... What a slog. Of course, the podcast has been wonderful, right? The podcast is really what's got us through this year in a certain way, isn't it, Sean? Yeah, and whenever I get some Valium, that also helps as well. (laughs) We've been so happy to have so many new listeners and to be hearing from you guys all the time, whether you're in America or Ireland or the UK or Botswana or wherever you happen to be. And we have enjoyed, haven't we, doing our last sort of mini-series, the last six episodes on maleness and masculinity. It's been it's been a treat, hasn't it, for us? Yeah, it has been interesting. And, and also, I was pondering this as I was doing the washing up. You know, we started this series with a very hyper-masculine episode, which was cruising. Mm-hmm. And we've actually looked at kind of gender identity a lot, rather than just masculinity. And so even though we've had films like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Ed Wood, and even Breakfast on Pluto, which does deal with trans issues... You know, we present these gender identities in the context of other forms of maleness which exist around them. And uh, if anything, they help us to realise what a different interpretation of maleness is or can be. Yeah, is that maleness is equally performative, equally constructed. It's not like the natural form of which femininity is the flip side, right? It's like all of gender is a bit of a performance that runs on a spectrum. Yeah, and so that's why I've been very happy with the, the films that we've chosen and yeah. talked about. And I think you might be scratching your head and saying to yourself, Sean and Brian, love you guys, but it's Christmas time, it's almost New Year's, why have you chosen a movie called Dog Day Afternoon to wrap up the year when it's set in the hot summer of the 1970s? But there is a method to our madness, isn't there, Sean? Oh, somewhere. <laughs> no, but honestly, we almost were just going to do six episodes for The Male Gaze, but I kind of really advocated for Dog Day Afternoon. You know, I love a bit of symmetry. I love a diptych. <laughs> yeah, Don't do. we all? Don't we all love a diptych? <laughs> no, but honestly, I prefer a dictive. <laughs> Duly noted. Um, We'll get to that later. But yeah, we started with Cruising, which is a terrible film, which in which Al Pacino very badly plays a person pretending to be gay. Did I not like it? (laughs) No, you kind of liked it. But I think we both agreed that Pacino's Dancing on Poppers was a crime against humanity. That is unacceptable. (laughs) Call the UN, please. We felt the need to return to Pacino in his other famously queer role, which is Dog Day Afternoon from 1975, directed by Sidney Lumet. 
What do you know about Dog Day Afternoon, Sean? Well, it is about a real-life incident in which a man held up a bank to get the money to pay for his transgender lover's gender reassignment. That's right. Well, that was sort of one of the reasons. There's a documentary uh, that came out a while ago called The Dog, which apparently is all about the really interesting real-life character that this movie was based on. I don't think that the Sydney Lumet film is particularly accurate, but it was a real thing that occurred in what city and what part of that city? New York City? Yeah, and what borough? Brooklyn? That's right, it occurred in Brooklyn. It actually occurred in Gravesend, which is um, a great kind of Italian-American section of Brooklyn, but I think the film was filmed uh, in Windsor Terrace just off Prospect Park. You may well have indeed walked those streets with me, Sean, Mm -hmm. in our previous trip to New York. But can I ask you a question? Yeah. So, if this has a trans relationship as the plot device, you could say, why is this never really lumped into the queer film canon? I have seen Dog Day Afternoon, and I remember liking it, but it was so long ago. It was one of those things where I'd probably been reading Pauline Kael and other kind of film criticism, like, this is a great movie of the 70s, I should watch it. And I think I'd never lived in New York at the time, <laughs> sort of like a virgin who can't drive at the time. Oh, Brian, 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 <laughs> you could drive. <laughs> Probably not when I saw this movie, to be honest. I was that precocious, folks. So I watched Dog Day Afternoon, but I really, I don't have a vivid memory of its particulars, except for the tone of it. This movie is often cited as one of the great New York movies, because you have Pacino robbing this bank. Do you know who plays his accomplice? No. John Cazal. So when I say to you the name John Cazal, or Casale, I suppose. What comes to mind? Who do you think of? I, I think of Meryl Streep. And what? Also, Why? Well, because she dated him, didn't she? She did. And for those looking for emotional, beautifully rendered detail of that, please run to your nearest bookstore or to your nearest Amazon and get her again, Becoming Meryl Streep, by podcast fan Michael Shulman. Because Meryl's relationship with John Cazal is one of the main threads of that biography that Michael wrote. I was just looking in, in the book just before we started recording, and they met in 1976 at the Public Theatre under Joseph Papp. Do you know what Shakespeare play they appeared in together? A Winter's Tale. No, it's one that we've seen. You liked it, I did I mean, I liked the play, I didn't like this production. Oh, um, Twelfth Night. No, we'd never seen Twelfth Night. Measure for Measure, darling. Oh, M for M. M for M, yeah. So they were in Measure for Measure. Wait, we haven't seen Twelfth Night together, no? <laughs> Don't think oh. so. <laughs> if music be the food of love, play Sean. Uh, anyway, so... <laughs> what? I like that. You like that? Yeah. Okay, that's take it. Anyway, they met on Measure for Measure. They had a romance that lasted on a sad two years because John Cazal died of lung cancer. As opposed to us, a relationship of a sad two we have, years. <laughs> we have now outlasted John Cazal and Meryl Streep. We're going for that Gummer record, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is going to be the Gummer relationship. But I wanted to say something briefly about John Cazal. Do you know his most famous role in film? I think it was the Deer Hunter, wasn't it? Well, he's very famous in the Deer Hunter, but he's also Fredo in The Godfather. Oh, of course. Wow. Talk about a slew of hits. No, honestly, so this is an amazing stat. You can use this in your pub quiz. Only one person, John Cazal, every single movie he appeared in has been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. So that's only five films. The two Godfather movies, Dog Day Afternoon, The Deer Hunter... And The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola, all were nominated, and three of them won. That's That's, some record. It's an incredible film career, and he also had a great career on the stage. That's where he first met Pacino. They appeared in Israel Horowitz's play, Indian Wants the Bronx. 
So when he and Pacino were playing brothers in the Godfather series and then buddies slash robbery accomplices in this, they had a long kind of history together. So that's John Cazale. The other supporting actor from Dog Day Afternoon is someone whose surname is very famous, but he himself has not had the biggest career. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I know. It's Chris Sarandon. Yeah. Of course, we know him for bequeathing his name to his wife, Susan. Also, wasn't he the voice of Jack Skellington? in Nightmare Why is he? Chris Sarandon. Yeah, well, that's the only the other role I know him from. Yeah, so I guess he did this Oscar-nominated role. He did that. He must have done some other things, but he's definitely not as famous as Susan has turned out to be. Anyway, where were we going with this? Oh, you were saying, why is Dog Day Afternoon not considered to be in the queer canon? My memory is it's one of those boundary-pushing films that feels quite like masculine in a certain way because it's a heist movie. I guess it's kind of a thriller. I mean, it's this tense thing where they hold up this bank and everything kind of starts to fall Mm. apart. So interesting that you say that the maleness, the genre maleness of it, almost trumps the queerness of it. When you said earlier that the sex reassignment thing, I mean, you called it a plot mechanism, and I guess it is sort of, although it's interesting to note that it was based on real events. So someone was actually motivated in some way, at least partially by the need to help their partner go through gender reassignment, to rob a bank. But it feels like one of those high concept pitches that like, yeah, here's an idea for you. Gay guy needs some money, so he holds up a bank. Like, it feels like one of those like Ed Wood pitches, like the ghoul goes west, you know? <laughs> and so how much of the film is Chris Sarandon in? My memory is that he's mostly in scenes where, like oddly, it's the typical kind of wife calling in on the phone kind of role. Oh. But interestingly, Dog Day Afternoon is probably the best ever someone's holding up a something film. We saw probably one of the worst ones just this year. Do you remember us going to see? Money Monster. Money Monster. Money Monster. Money Monster. (laughs) That movie was terrible. And that had a wife who was calling in. Do you remember? No, I honestly don't. Yeah, it did. Oh, God. Don't see that movie. Even if you like Julia and Jody, like, God... And actually, Jody's also an Inside Man, which is a pretty good bank heist movie. The Spike Lee one with, um, with um, Denzel. I guess one of the things that's interesting about Dog Day Afternoon, I would say more than a queer film, my memory is it's a real New York film, mm-hmm. right? Only in New York would you have this kind of crazy situation of a kind of desperate man driven to circumstances of robbing a bank for this kind of completely off-the-wall reason, and then all these people trapped in this situation. And my memory is that one of the joys of the film is that all the people, the hostages, are all these very individual characters in themselves, and then you have the cops, and then you have Chris Sarandon, and it really is known for capturing that sense in the 70s that New York City was a place that was always teetering on the edge of chaos and madness, Mm. which is, I guess, an apt description of... Stay the world we're in now. <laughs> Stay the world we're in Except now. with added nuclear war. <laughs> yes. Uh, we talked a lot about Al Pacino in the cruising episode, mostly disparagingly. Or do, do you have an open mind to kind of accept one of Pacino's most iconic, perhaps best roles? Yeah, so what's his hair like in this? Is it curls or is it like something else? I think it's wicked sweaty because we're, okay. remember, it's the dog days of summer. Okay. Yeah, it's really hot. Why do I keep doing a Boston accent? This film is not set in Boston. Did you just say wicked? <laughs> I did say wicked. 
Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we should say about Dog Day Afternoon. You know, there's a few films where I, I have consciously said to myself, I'm gonna see this one day, and I know it's good already, yeah. and, and holds a place in the cinematic canon. Yeah. So I don't need to know anything else about well, it. Sidney Lumet is one of the great directors who's maybe not, you know, acclaimed as much as he ought to be. He started in the golden age of television. You know, they used to do TV live and all these kind of wonderful Playhouse 90 adaptations and he's done... Um, we did Network, didn't he? That was well, he, Network, yeah, was his big Oscar-winning hit. But, I mean, he, he did 12 Angry Men. Oh, he wow. did uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, the film adaptation of that. I just watched a film on a plane recently, The Verdict with Paul Newman. But he's one of those directors who is both an unostentatious stylist who's able to, like, really cut a film and create tension while also extracting great performances from actors. I yeah. think that's sort of Sidney Lumet's reputation. But um, shall we turn to the film, Sean, and leave the wintry atmosphere for, for the heat of summer in Brooklyn? Let's do it, babe. Got the militia out here, huh? Let Sal come out and take a look, all right? What hope you got? Huh? Come on, quit while you're ahead. All you got is attempted robbery. Armed robbery. All right, armed then. Yeah. Uh, nobody's been hurt. Release the hostages. Nobody's going to worry over kidnapping charges. The most you're going to get is five years. You get out in one year, huh? Kiss me, yeah. What? Kiss me. When I'm being fucked, I like to get kissed hey, a come lot. Come on, come yeah. on, now, come on. You're a city cop, right? Robbing the bank's a federal offense. They got me on kidnapping, armed robbery. They're gonna bury me, man. I don't want to talk to somebody who's trying to calm me. Get somebody in charge here. I am in charge I don't want to talk to some flunky pig trying to calm me, man. You don't have to be calling What's he pigs? doing? What do you get back what over there? What are you there? over there for? What do you What's get the doing? fuck back there? Get back What's there, What's he doing? Look at him with him. Get over there. Go on back there, man. Get over there, will ya? He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. Oh, God, I was gonna kill Attica! 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 We've just robbed a bank, and what have we got to show for it, Sean? <laughs> what? Nothing? No nothing! We've got nothing! <laughs> there were only $1,100 in that bank to begin with. I've, le I've left him speechless, folks. <laughs> God, these patented segues. <laughs> I'm sorry, babe. I'm He's sorry. in shock. Actually, you were sort of in shock when this movie ended. Brian, what an incredible film. I know, but is it fair to say that you watch this film in far more rapt attention than you sometimes watch some of the movies? Okay, so when we go to the cinema, Brian, you know that I am the KGB of cinema audiences. The number of times that Sean has physically accosted people. If anybody talks or checks their phone or... Picks their nose, no, taps their foot, no. happens to look at their boyfriend and give a little expression like, wasn't that a funny line? Slap in the face, folks. Slap in Not the face. Not true. It happened. It happened at L. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know that? No, that's because you were you were about to say something at a pivotal moment. It's amazing how Sean knows what I'm about to say before I say yeah, it. Yeah, I knew you were about to talk to me during a pivotal moment. I love bringing this out, folks. It's called trolling, see? You've opened a can of worms here, okay? <laughs> One reason why I do it is because people do not expect someone to do to tell them off. We're living in such a kind of crazy world, divisive world, really. You know, where people people say such horrible things on the internet, but tapping someone on the shoulder in the dark room quietly and saying, sorry, could you not talk, please? Just, anyway, it's, it's so quiet, Brian, you can't even hear it. We live in a world of declining standards of civility, and we really need to return to return to standards of civility. I don't is know who... Bill, I don't is know that Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton meets Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Anyway, that all said and done, you have your key rules yeah. for when we're out in public. Oh, yeah. But it has to be said, when we're watching the movie at home, and especially we yeah. know we're going to we're gonna do home, these conversations, you know, we often chit-chat. We have some popcorn, we, we have some wine. Some poppers. Poppers. <laughs> That was just cruising. But yeah, all of this is to say that during the viewing of Dog Day Afternoon, Sean was remarkably engrossed in the film. There was one thing that he did say to me that I could remember. He said, do they know that this is comical? And I was like, they? Are they the bank robbers or the filmmakers? I think I said both of them. You loved this movie, didn't you, Sean? Yeah, I did. I really loved it. In the first half, we were talking about crappy movies that have very similar premises. Movies like Money Monster. Money Monster. <laughs> we hated that movie, Money Monster. I mean, it was probably the worst movie we saw this entire year. Would you agree? Yeah, actually, I think I would. <laughs> it was a remarkably similar premise disgruntled man who is a representative of the times and the zeitgeist and the society he lives in goes on a media-saturated attempt to change his life that all goes wrong, right? Yeah. And if Money Monster was sort of about the Occupy Wall Street Bernie Sanders kind of zeitgeist, then Dog Day Afternoon, in theory, is kind of about, I don't know, Vietnam and public corruption and the dissatisfaction of the 70s as the American social fabric unravels. deflated white man. I guess there's a lot of commonality between that moment in the 70s and the moment that we're going through now. But stylistically, where Money Monster was just everything was underlined. This is the thing. Like We live in a time where, for some reason, we need to, like you said, underline every single plot device. We need to be reminded of things. Mm -hmm. We need every person's sentiments or feeling to be explicitly stated. It's like those we connect need to know the dots. who is bad yeah. and who yeah. is good. Who we're supposed to care about. If this film were made today, it would be about half an hour longer because there would be half an hour of incidental setup. Comparing it again to Money Monster. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Thanks, Jody. <laughs> Doggy Afternoon is so tight. It begins and ends exactly where it needs to. There's very little exposition, and any kind of background information of the characters that we learn about is revealed to us gradually in this quite revelatory way. Yeah, and I think that's a testament to the strength of Frank Pearson's Oscar-winning screenplay, mm -hmm. which gives you all the things you need and leaves just enough opaque about the characters and their motivations. It's also a testament to Sidney Lumet's direction. It's not cinematic in the grandiose sense. It's not a David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia, not, no. Not at all, not at all. But it's cinematic in the sense that you are sucked into a story from the beginning right up until the very last shot. This movie has one song at the start in the kind of pre-credits sequence where we're seeing 
different shots of people around New York enjoying the summer, having ice cream, going to Coney Island. And then, just quite starkly and succinctly, the main titles, Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. No other cast. A few credits, and the movie just starts. Yeah. From that point onward, there is no more musical score, no, even zero. through the rest of this movie. There is a minimum of what you would call obvious cinematic trickery. You notice the editing because that is the score, that is the musicality of the film. Mm. We zero in on this one bank. It's a place called the First Brooklyn Savings Bank. And the first shot we see of the bank from far across the street is an elderly black man in a military veteran's uniform lowering the flag, the American flag, and yeah. folding it up to um, close up the bank for the day. But it's not in like tight close up or yeah, anything. Exactly. Let's think of the symbolism of that. So yeah, it's honestly. a wide shot. We see a parked car, we see people walking up and down, we see the supply being taken down. If that were today, it would be, first of all, a shot of a first majestic flag wilting <laughs> in the air. Well, some Aaron it, Copeland music plays. Exactly, as it slowly makes its way down into these wizened black hands. And maybe falls onto the street and someone, like, steps on it. And, yeah, because there's something about the American psyche that's being represented in this film, but in a very understated way. And from that point onward, we're going to be taken, as you say, on this tight, claustrophobic journey. We're only in a very few locations really, mostly inside the bank itself, on the street outside, in the barbershop across the street where the police set up their operations. And a couple of scenes in Al Pacino's uh, family's home. Family home. Yeah, quick cutaways. Yeah. So we want to get to the plot and the characters, but this movie feels to me like the quintessence of 70s American filmmaking. It just makes me wonder like why the 70s. When television came in, it took the onus away from cinema to create mass market entertainment. And when you move that kind of appeal to everybody, fluffy, family sentiment away from the cinema and put it on the television, what you're left with, I guess, is a medium saying, well, what are we, really? Who are we for? I guess what you're saying is that it became, in a way, a sort of niche thing. And therefore, it was a cosmopolitan activity to go to films. And you had kind of younger, hipper people really engaging in what film was doing as opposed to what television was doing. Nowadays, it's almost the reverse, isn't it? Things like Marvel movies are yet again trying to appeal if not to everyone, at least to everyone under 30. Uh, under and, 20. Yeah, and, and, under 15. And everyone stays at home to watch the sophisticated stuff. That's why you're interrupting all those people in the movie theaters, because the smart people are, are at home streaming movie. Well, that's a very fair point, because the one time that I really had to tell people to shush was when... Myself and my friend Ruth went to see, a couple of years ago, we went to see one of the Hunger Games things. I'm, I'm thinking, ooh, the potential for an intellectual blockbuster that says something. But even at that, I had to, you know, tell people around me to shut the fuck up, you know? Well, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> wait, the movie we saw is called Dog Day Afternoon, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the show's called Dog Day Afternoon, it ain't called Classes. All right, so... See ya. So, um, set us up, Shawnee. The first Brooklyn Savings Bank is nearly closed for the day. A few rather innocuous Italian-American-looking gentlemen walk in. One of them is carrying a sort of wrapped, what looks like a birthday present, although in a very long. large box, yeah. large and long. Where do we go from there? Okay, so we got Sonny, who is our main character, played by Al Pacino. Then we have Sal, who's played by John Cazale. And there's also a kind of kid who 
His name probably is mentioned, but I don't remember it. But he's a he's like a teenager almost. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And he's the third man. This is why I love the film so much. In the first few scenes, we're presented with these such conflicting images of how these characters are going to go about doing this. Sal is dressed like somebody who wants to get a mortgage, so he's you know presenting himself fairly well. They look like upstanding members of the community. Although, let it be said. Creepy. You said John Cazale looks like a gargoyle. Is that John Cazale? I was like, is that him? That's the guy Meryl dated? I did say he looked like a gargoyle. They were my exact words. Is there an adjective about gargoyle? Gargoylic. Gargoylish. Gargoylish. Miriam Gargoylish. Yes. (laughs) But anyway, so he sits down and and the bank manager's on the phone. He he goes to the bank manager. You the manager? And then Sal's holding this briefcase and he takes out quite quite an aggressive looking little automatic weapon. And at that point, I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen? It seems like at first they've got it all under control. Although, very, very soon, this whole bank robbery starts to fall apart. Yeah, you see it with the manoeuvring of the box that uh, Al Pacino's holding. Right. This is the moment where you realise, no, these guys aren't slick. What he should be doing is flipping off the lid, pulling out the weapon and pointing everybody. Which is what, you know, Scarface would do. It's what big boy Caprice yeah. in um, Dick Tracy yeah. would do. But instead, like, you could see him fumbling with it. He's all butterfingers. He pulls the weapon out in this most kind of slack slapstick way possible while kind of then maniacally but also jitterily pointing it at everybody and the kid as well who can barely, he's by the door he, he can't even point it at anybody and from that moment you realize okay these guys aren't professionals here yeah and the kid within minutes is saying to Sonny I don't like the vibes of this I can't do it while the all the bank tellers are kind of staring confused at what's going on and the kid decides to leave they have to unlock the bank door allow the kid out Sonny realizes that the kid has the car keys they have to let him back in they have a little like debate about whether the kid could take the getaway car or not and Sonny's like just take the subway take the subway and then he gets the keys And you think, oh God, this is all going downhill from here. But let's zero in slightly on our two protagonists. One of the interesting things about the movie is that it never really explains how they know each other. This is what I love, okay? So whenever anyone of any significance, like a parent or family member, would hear that Sal was there, they'd be like, Sal is there? You with Sal? It's like, so we know that there's a relationship between these two guys that goes back. I think there's an implication that they've both served in Vietnam. Whether they served in the same unit, I'm not sure. One of the things I think that you're meant to read into their characters is that whatever happened to them in Vietnam have definitely colored who they are. We also learn that they've spent time in prison. We're not quite sure for what. That might make you picture a certain kind of kind of wise guy type, which certainly Pacino has played in other things. In a weird way, they walk this line between being thuggish and sweet and hapless and clever all at once. They're true protagonists in the sense that they're the people who the action rests on. Although we see these two guys come into Robber Bank, for the longest time we don't know why. The people that they take hostage in the bank are these mostly innocent, seemingly pleasant, run-of-the-mill women. And yet, I think we're very sympathetic with the robbers. There's this kind of humanity to everyone who's inside that bank. I'm thinking about the the men themselves. Why is there a humanity about them? Is it because of their haplessness? When Sal says, you know, I can't go back to prison, I'm not going back to prison. We never find out why, but we don't need to. This is a testament to the skill of the story and the filmmaking. 
Because in a, in a contemporary film, we would get all that backstory. The film would be half an hour longer. There's a line that Pacino says early on to the hostages. He says, I'm a Catholic. I don't want to hurt anybody. This is the part I like as well. Because when you have the, the mastermind of the heist not being the one to be afraid of, it creates a whole different kind of tension. Yeah. Let's talk about who these hostages are. So there's, a, there's the aforementioned guard whose name is Howard, who's a black man who is dressed as a military veteran. Very soon it's revealed that he is asthmatic. As the hostage situation is intensifying, they decide to let him out because the air in the bank is becoming impossible for him to breathe. Mm -hmm. Then we've got Mr. Mulvaney, who's the bank manager, who actually has quite a few chats with Sonny. He's relatively accommodating and friendly with him. And then we have this whole collection of female bank tellers. Fabulous. They're amazing. Yeah, each of them with their own little individual personality. Yeah, they're very deftly sketched. One of them, the only one who's a, an actress that I know, turns out to be Carol Kane in what must have been one of her first film roles. I believe it was the same year of Hester Street. The woman who's the head bank teller. Her, I name, think, her name is Penelope Allen. Yeah, and the character's name is Sylvia. She's like the Eve Arden character, you know, a kind of wise-cracking dame early on, and she's the one who kind of speaks up for the girls She's the, the mother hen. And Pacino starts calling her Mouth. <laughs> Which which I think is such a great name. We couldn't quite pick up whether she had an Irish accent. It sounded like she... I'm deciding that she did. You know, as everything's really going wrong, she's just saying to Pacino, like, Oh, I see. You don't really have a plan at all, do you? This is all on a whim. <laughs> and she's just like, why are you even doing this? Because he's clearly thought through some things. He's also worked in a bank. Yeah. So he knows all this stuff where they're trying to trip the alarms and they're trying to hand him decoy bills. He sees through that. So he's like, no, 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 show me where the money is. But then it turns out in the vault when they get there that there's only $1,100 yeah, in the vault. Because they, they picked it up earlier. Yeah. yeah. And so all of this rigmarole that they've gone through is actually going to be for very little reward. And I think in some sense, it's the futility of the whole thing that drives them to keep going with it. Oh, I completely agree. If they've already risked all of this... For so little. For so little, then they have to carry through with it. Sonny's absolutely fatal error comes when he decides to take the traveler's checks. There's not enough cash, so he's going to take these traveler's checks, and then he's going to burn the registers of the traveler's checks. Do you remember traveler's checks? Yeah, I do. I used to... My dad used to use them. I know. My first trip to Europe, I think I had one. The bank would keep the other copy of the check or something like that. So if he's going to steal the traveler's checks, he has to burn the records. Yeah, that's the why they were safe, because yeah. you couldn't just nick them, wasn't right. it? it? The smoke from the, the burned register is uh, is seen coming out of the air vent by the insurance guy across the street. And I remember the bank is locked up at this point. He comes over and they have to send Mr. Mulvaney to the door to kind of deal with it. Very soon afterwards, the cops show up. And not just a small number of cops but a vast array of cops. It's seemingly cops from all over Brooklyn, and they're led by the police chief, uh, played by Charles Durning. He's fabulous. That wonderful character actor who shows up yeah. in everything from the Muppet movie to... <gasps> oh, yeah. yeah who he's, was he in the Muppet movie? He's he the, the villain. Oh, was he the... He's the guy who tries to get Kermit, who's wanting to make... Um... He wants to make him into a frog, into frog's legs. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> No! <laughs> so this is his second greatest role in Dog Day Afternoon. He's um, Dorothy Michaels' love interest as well. That's correct. He's the father in Les. Pussy. Yeah, yeah. With that wonderful music video sequence yeah. where he and Dustin Hoffman and Drag are riding What's on the, the tractor. Song? I keep telling you it might be you for all of my life. Or something like that. One of those great 80s hits. Um, 
So it's only just begun. What's that? That's what I always think it is. It's That's not the Carpenters. It's not. Of course, it's not. Yeah. So yeah, Charles Durning is the cop. The bank robbers mess everything up, but Charles Durning later acknowledges that the cops have messed things up as well. And a huge crowd of people is gathered outside, and they have a massive operation. Yeah. Of people with rifles. God. And that's it, America for you. Well, it's impossible not to think of some of the scenes that we've seen today of kind of like over response to things. And I think from that point onward, the whole situation is fueled with a kind of overreaction on everyone's part. Oh, yes. That no one can de-escalate well, from. Speaking of overreaction, when Charles Sterling sets up this kind of relationship with Sonny and they agree to let one hostage out, the police are, are under the impression that it's only women who are held hostage. And that they're going to let a yeah. woman out. And what they do is they release Howard, who is this, you know black guy. And asthmatic. He's pushed out of the building and he's kind of doubling over, reaching out, stumbling. And suddenly the police go apeshit. They push him against the car bonnet, they handcuff him and Mouth, the head banker lady, runs out runs herself. Out and, and is like, he's a hostage! And it's tense. It's tense because yeah. you don't know what they're going to do to him. Well, because they've got snipers set up on the roof. There's a whole line of police. And I think very crucially, there's this massive crowd of people gathering. So Sonny, while he is hapless, he also feeds on the energy of the crowd. Whether it's from his own history in prison or what it is, as soon as he sees all those police, he becomes defiant. He becomes a showman. And he has these amazing scenes where he's strutting up and down in front mm. of the bank and shouting, Attica! Attica! And he's like egging on the crowd to say, look at all of us, the common man. We are being over-policed by the state. And he says something like, do you remember what happened in Attica? They shot the people who were guilty and the people who were innocent. Now, Attica, it was a famous prison riot that had gone on for days in upstate New York just one year before the events that this had taken place. And it ended with, I think, dozens of deaths of both inmates and cops. What's fascinating is that this crowd very soon is taken on to Sonny's side and Sonny becomes this kind of hero. And the same is true of the, of the hostages. Like, even though they're in this terrible situation, they feel quite sympathetic to Sonny and Sal, and there are these lovely little conversations where they're getting to know each other inside the bank. And you're just thinking, God, couldn't someone just say, let's let all of this slide? Like, has really anything all that bad happened? Mm. But of course, it can't. Yeah. And it just keeps escalating. And the FBI shows up. Yeah. And the FBI agent bears a very striking resemblance to George W. Bush, which is even more of a sign of terror to come. There's another amazing moment, and this was the part that reminded me most of Money Monster in a weird way. So the news media comes and somehow they get a line inside the bank and they call Sonny and they have Sonny on the television and they're saying to him, why did you do this? Why did you rob the bank? This is some kind of stiff, you know, waspy reporter asking him this question. And he's like, what do you mean? Why did I rob a bank? I needed the money. No, no. What I mean is, why do you feel you have to steal for money? Couldn't you get a job? Uh, no. Doing what? You know, you know, you gotta get if you if you want a job, you gotta be a member of a union. See, and if you're not, if you've got no uh, union card, you don't get a job. What about non-union occupations? What's wrong with this guy? What do you mean non-union? Like what? A bank teller? You know how much a bank teller makes a week? Not much. Not much. 115 to start, right? Now you're gonna live on that. I got a wife and a couple of kids. How am I gonna live on that? 
Uh, what do you make a week? I'm here to talk to you, Sonny. Uh, no, well, I'm, talk to, I'm talking to you. We're entertainment, right? What do you, what do you, what do you got for us? What do you want to get for it? Do you expect to be paid? Because no, of I don't want to be paid. I don't need to be paid. Look, I'm here with my partner and nine other people. See, we're dying, man. You know? You're going to see our brains on a sidewalk. They're going to spill our guts out. Now, you're going to show that on television? Have all your housewives look at that instead of as the world turns? I mean, what do you got for me? I want something for that. Sonny. Yeah? You could give up. Give up? Right. You ever been to prison? No. No. Well, let's talk about something you fucking know about, okay? It's the swear word that yeah. turned <laughs> that's yeah. the whole thing turning. <laughs> this is all going on, and there's lots of back and forth. He comes up with this plan. Send us a limo. Take us to the airport. Oh, First, yeah. it's a helicopter, but then they downgrade it to a limo. It gets preposterous here. Get us to the airport. We'll get on a jet and we'll fly out of the country. To Algeria is their first idea. <laughs> well, I mean, Sal actually says he wants to go to another country called Wyoming. Wyoming. <laughs> you see that the women in the bank are kind of getting caught up in this excitement. It's like... Yeah, Mouth is like, Algeria? That'd be a nice place to take a trip. And the girls are like, woo! You some know, of them, yeah, some, some of them. not Maria the Catholic, no, who has Maria. her hot-blooded Spanish boyfriend yeah. outside who wants to save her. Now, Brian, I want to focus the conversation a bit more on uh, what we think is happening at this point. So we know he has a wife. Two kids. We see them. We know who they are. They get their own scenes, that kind of stuff. So there's a short cutaway scene to Sonny's Brooklyn apartment, and we meet his wife. So his wife is a hefty woman. <laughs> A demonstrative woman. She's a Brooklyn housewife. Yeah, she's a Brooklyn housewife. And they got two kids and they're on welfare. She, we could, know. she could easily have been played by Divine if this was a John Waters movie, I think. She could have been played by Divine in, in more of her, like, Francine Fishpaw kind yeah. of uh, persona. I mean, she talks in my own and she's like, yeah. oh my god, I can't believe Sonny's doing this. But then, this is the point where the film turns. Sonny says, get my wife on the phone, get my wife down here. So you think that he's talking about this blousy woman that Sean just described. And then the police car pulls up. This is, we're talking, it's like more than halfway through the movie. Yeah, it is. And this person steps out of the cruiser in a robe, sort of like a dressing gown with nail varnish on. We see someone who looks like they've obviously been tranquilized yeah. or sedated recently. But this is not the woman that we've seen before. This is Chris Sarandon as Leon, who is Al Pacino's other wife. Exactly. So actually, Al Pacino has been married twice. Mm -hmm. Once presumably in a Catholic legal service, and then once we learn in this kind of amazing drag gay wedding. Yeah, officiated by a Catholic priest who is a gay Catholic priest who was later defrocked and with seven bridesmaids, all, all of in them, drag. All of them in drag. Can you imagine being an audience seeing this film for the first time and having your mind blown by this plot twist? Because you really don't see any of this coming. I think what happens is, even when you read a synopsis of the story, now anywhere, it will be like, man holds up bank to pay for surgery for transsexual lover. Yeah. That's kind of what it says. But the film privileges none of that yeah. information up until this point. What we see is, we see Chris Sarandon, who is this quite attractive, thin, wispy, wispy, fey yeah. person. Leon was Sonny's lover initially mm -hmm. and they formed a relationship and Leon had been to a, a psychotherapist or psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, someone anyway. The doctor diagnoses 
Leon as, as being a transsexual. Being, well, they say, he literally says, I'm a woman, a woman trapped in a man's body. body. To use that old, that old line. What I respect about the film is that Leon is presented as a transgender character. And apart from like a few nails of silver nail polish, <clears throat> Leon is not presented as this kind of dolled up, freakish, uh, larger than life character. Because we know that he's been in Bellevue. And he's been taken out of there. So he's just wearing a bathrobe. He's unshaved. His hair is uh, all unkempt. Like, he's a person who's been in hospital, basically. And he's clearly been having troubles. There's been suicide attempts. Both of Sonny's wives mention that Sonny has threatened them with guns. And so this is where we get a kind of darker picture of Sonny as Mm. someone who is under some kind of pressures that we don't fully understand. Mm is constantly threatening and haranguing the loved ones in his life. Sonny is this kind of inchoate, unstable person, and all these people are suffering the kind of ripple effects of this man. The idea that Sonny is robbing this bank to get the $2,000 that Leon needs for Leon's operation, in some ways it feels like this generous romantic gesture, but it's also not something that Leon ever wanted Sonny to do, right? It's not like... Leon is desperately afraid that the police are going to say that he's an accessory to the crime. And Leon also says, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you robbing a bank? We could have gotten the money some other way. He definitely does talk in that in that Brooklyn accent. He does. I, I, I really liked his performance. Did you? I guess he, he's allowed to shine because he has one big scene, I suppose you could say. It's not full of histrionics or anything, but the rhythm of his performance is a bit different to the other people we see on screen. He arrives late in the plot and he transforms it, which is also why his character is quite significant. And he's a person who's panicky, confused, shocked. Like I said, he'd previously been tranquilized before he got there. The movie sort of pauses at one point for a long extended phone conversation between Sonny and Leon, which is where we really learn a lot about their dynamic. Mm. And it is so sad and touching. Essentially, Sonny is trying to extract from Leon, do you want to join us on this plan to get on a jet and sail off to another country? which is this kind of dream that they can escape all the troubles and all the the suicide attempts and the pressures and the psychology that they've been suffering from under Amer- under American life in the 70s, you know? And they should be going to Tangiers in that case. Well, but they're going to Algeria supposedly, but Leon's answer is Algeria, they walk around with masks on. The people are crazy over there. Like, like Leon just can't understand this kind of utopian dream that Sonny has, that somehow all of yeah. these things are going to work out for the best. He yeah. really is like... Leon's a voice of reason. I don't know, Leon, you know. I'm dying here. I'm dying. Did you ever listen to yourself when you say that? Like, you're dying. Uh, did, did, you, did you ever listen to yourself? What are you talking about? What, what, what do you mean? What am I talking about? You, you are dying. Uh, uh, do you know that you say that to me every day of your life? Oh. I'm dying. Well, you're not dying. You're killing the people around you is what you're doing. Oh, come on. Leon, don't give me that shit. You know, I don't need that deep shit now. Well, I don't think you, you realize what it means, Sonny. You know, the things you do. Yeah. I know what I do. Uh, you, you, you stick a gun to somebody's head. You know, well, I don't know what I'm doing, yeah, so I'm yeah, fine with that. Yeah, well, obviously you don't. Go to sleep, Leon, so it won't hurt when I pull the trigger. For, for, why, what do you think I've been doing in the hospital? I mean, I, 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 I take a handful of pills to get away from you, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, now, now I'm talking to you on the phone again, right? I'm, I, I'm, I got no job. I don't have friends. I can't live. I, I have to live with people. 
this death business. I'm sorry. And Sonny is, he's heartbroken. He's like, okay, this is, this is what you want. Well, goodbye. See yeah. you in my dreams. Leon says, six months have been trying to get away from you. Now I'm going to take a plane trip with you? Yeah, so this is not the kind of love story that is easy to understand that's kind of been fueling the whole thing. And the other sad aspect of this is, as the news media has become aware that there's this whole transsexual, homosexual element to the whole motivation. This obviously becomes a sensationalist part yeah. of the story. And the crowd turns. The crowd turns against Sonny. So now whenever Sonny comes out and is dealing with the cops and frisking them to allow people to come into the bank, they're catcalling him. They're even, jeering, they're whooping. Yeah, even Sal gets upset yeah. because they describe it as two homosexuals inside the bank. This sense that he is now so marginalized right? He's not just like the common man, the little guy, the Vietnam veteran who was kind of fighting to fight the system. He's now a pervert. Essentially. And then, amazingly, I have to say, I had no memory of this yes. from my previous viewing. These people start arriving chanting, and I said to Sean, what are they chanting? And you said... Out of the closets, into the streets, which at, was a chant of the day. Yeah, of the gay liberation, liberation movement. So these gay rights activists show up chanting in support, and they say, Sonny all the way, we love you. So they're kind of rooting for Sonny and his crew to get off to Algeria where they can escape from these, you know... <laughs> these heteronormative uh, shackles. So what do you think of the crowd at this point? I mean, so the crowd initially was these disenfranchised Americans who were anti-police and pro the little guy. Mm -hmm. Then you get people who are just there to witness this crazy spectacle. Yeah. You get people who are vehemently against him. You also get the gay liberation movement. It does become this huge... It's a powder keg. Yeah, basically, of all these people who, for one reason or another, are condemning, cheering, and chanting, nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, it feels like America. It feels like America in the 1970s. It feels like America now. Yeah. These vociferous interest groups, yeah. all kind of at war and in these unstable alliances with each other, and it all just might explode. Um... So basically, shall we talk about how the how the whole thing plays out? They do get a limousine. There's some debate with the limousine driver, who's a kind of jive-talking black man, who seems like he's on Sonny's side, but then Sonny sniffs out maybe this guy is a cop in disguise, so they don't want him. They actually pick the real cop to drive, because he's like, at least I know who you are. Who I have to say is played by, you don't, you're not familiar with them, but played by the brilliant Lance Henriksen bishop in Aliens where he played a, a, an android the thing about Lance Henriksen is he has one of those faces that expresses a lot but his voice is monotone yeah you give a small role to a person who looks kind of friendly and placid so what happens is Lance Henriksen is the, is the driver of the car who we know is the cop and we know he's a cop when he, he gets in and everyone gets in well yeah in, yeah. in probably my favorite shot See, of yeah. the Film. Yeah, yeah. Basically, through the whole thing, Sonny and Sal know the reason why we are not being shot dead is because we have these these hostages. Yeah. And everyone thinks we're scum, but they don't want these hostages yeah. to be killed. So they kind so, of they leave the they leave the bank in this amazing like you know moving circular arms link closeness cluster cluster yeah. yeah so the the hostages are surrounding Sonny's and what's so amazing is that even though these women these hostages have been put through this ordeal they've bonded in some weird way with these two strange desperate unstable men Sonny and Sal 
and they're both frightened and excited to be getting into the limo and driving to Kennedy Airport. But also, one of the deals was that if they go into the limo, then they, they free a hostage. So this is kind of negotiating tools yeah. as well. But So they all get into the car. Lance Henriksen, in his, in his, this kind of skinny younger guy in a suit, turns around and says, Sal, I'm just going to have to ask you to point your gun up if we hit a speed bump. It'll go off. It'll it'll go off, and we don't want any accidents at this point. They drive along as they're on their way to Kennedy what Airport. A, what a scene! What a shot! They've cleared the <gasps> roads, but people are still jeering and shouting. Yeah. We hear some Spanish people in the car riding by going, Maricón! Which means faggot. Which means faggot in Spanish. Spanish. They get to the airport, and there is indeed a jet with the jet engines running, and that is essentially... <sighs> but also, the jet... The, this, this is another great part of the filming is that the jet itself kind of kind of like creeps into shot yeah and we're presented with the huge size of this thing as well the, the industrial and the sound of the yeah. engines and the sound like, of the engines is basically the soundtrack yeah. of the entire and it's your ending. heartbeat you it's know? also Sonny's I think internal pressures yeah we, we like, like, a, like, like a tea kettle like a, like a kettle on a, on a on stove a boil. On... so they finally get to the airport they let out the one young woman who's the last hostage Maria. to be freed Maria and she says to Sal, Sal, I know this is your first plane flight, so don't be worried. You're going to be fine. And she hands him a rosary bead. Mm. She gets taken away. It seems like, miraculously, they're all going to get on this plane. Although I think we as viewers know there's no way this is going to work out the way that they hope. So then Lance Henriksen again turns and says, remember, Sal, just keep that gun pointed up. Again, we don't want any incidents at this point. And what a shot, what a scene. Okay. Yeah. Sal points his gun up. While Lance Henriksen, I don't know his name, I keep calling him Lance, well, Lance. While Lance is saying this, we see him open up kind of a secret little little compartment, compartment where there's a there's a there's a, a revolver or some kind of handgun there. The police officers say now and they pull their arms on the women and they kind of push them to the side while Lance Henriksen pulls this weapon, turns back immediately and shoots Sal in the head. Like right in the right brain. in the head, right yeah. in the middle of it. So Sal is <sighs> dead. Sonny is handcuffed. The women are taken away into safety in the airport. And the movie ends. Yeah. The movie ends, virtually ends with this close-up of Pacino, who's this amazing contradictory character that we've been kind of following so intensely through this whole movie. The sound of the whirring engines kind of mirroring all his internal pressures and confusions as we look at him and we get a few titles explaining Mm. that Leon finally did get the sex change operation and now lives as a woman. Sonny went to prison and that Sonny's wife lives with the two kids still on welfare. And that's really all we learn. And then the movie ends. Mm. And we're left with so many still unanswered questions, so many things still not explained about motivations. And yet it has been an amazing ride of a movie, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Sean, I think we both agree that we loved this movie and we would completely recommend it to any viewer to watch. Yes? Oh, yeah. Even at Christmas time. (laughs) (laughs) or New Year's. It feels like a fitting movie to end 2016 on somehow. Well, I mean, a deeply tense representation of all the insecurities of a superpower. And all the fighting and confusion of different groups that just can't coalesce. And yet running through it is this ribbon of humanity that one would hope would be allowed somehow to flourish, even though in this film that humanity never really is able to come to the fore, right? The powers of the state and the law and the money money. and and war, it controls everything. 
it controls people's sexualities and people's incomes. It feels very fitting for 2016. I'm also, though, wondering, in addition to being our last film of 2016, it's also our last film of our series, The Male Gaze, our miniseries. How did this feel to you as a film about masculinity, as a kind of bookend to our two Al Pacino films, Cruising and this? You know, much of my feelings toward Dolce Afternoon are also much of my feelings toward 2016, which sense that it's draining, yeah. it's challenging, it's hard. You think you know what's going to happen and nothing nothing happens the way you expected. Yeah. Not to get too theoretical, but it reminds you about the specter of capitalism impinging itself onto the lives of queer people and how so much of it depends on our relationship to capital and money and power structures. The whole thing rests on securing money for someone to have the affirmation of the identity that they have. Yeah, I mean, we're just sort of left with the wreckage of these of these little people in the midst of all this. I think this maybe this movie seemed almost like the outlier in the ones that we selected of the seven to look at in this miniseries. But do you think it fits in somehow with the whole spectrum of, of masculinities that we've explored? Oh, I think it fits in in the sense that we've learned truly at this point that masculinity is performative. It comes in various different uh, shades and that ultimately it's held against this one imperceivable idea of what a man is and should be and can be. We saw, I mean, the most masculine film we saw was Cruising, which was about <laughs> gay sex, essentially. Yeah, and which was the kind of hyper, butch, insanely sadistic version of that to the point where it, it went over into camp. Then we saw all these kind of neurotic masculinities with um, Written on the Wind and, and kind Red, of... Red River. Yeah, and these gender, gender fluid yeah. um, performances. I mean, I have to say, Al Pacino in this film, what a performance. Yeah. Can you imagine the intensity of filming this over however many days and weeks it took to make this movie and sustaining that level? And also, Pacino had just come off of both The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, and this. There's no way in my mind that he couldn't have been considered anything other than the most incredible actor of the time. Mm. I know that we think of him as a joke nowadays, but just think about Pacino from 1972 to 1975. You've got to give this man praise. Yeah. Do you think cruising was the, be the beginning of the slippage? <laughs> Do you think? It could easily be. It could yeah. be his mommy dearest, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah, well, Al. Both uh, him and Faye were in Sidney Lumet films before everything went tits up. <laughs> this is one of those rare instances of straight filmmakers making a movie that's queer that somehow seems to bring it to almost a universal level yeah. of kind of all the things that you long for that you can't have. I, I don't know. I completely agree with that. Isn't that yeah. interesting? It's just because normally when we think about queer stories in the hands of straight people, they're... They're watered down or they're, they're freak shows. evened out in some way. Do you think this, this... Did this teaser on freak show at any point for you? You know... Would I have preferred it to be an, an uh, you know, an out gay actor cast in the role? Sure. But I do think it's handled sensitively. And the, the time it was made. And the, the kind of longing and romance between Sonny and Leon is handled beautifully. It's not over-sentimentalized either. It's, they're handled like real people who have a complicated relationship that's both good and bad. And Sonny, when he writes his will, because he writes his will at one point, he calls Leon my darling wife. 
and he calls Angie my sweet wife. So it's like he has these contradictions. He wants to leave them both a bit of himself. Mm. I mean, it's really, there is a kind of tragic note that's struck through the whole thing. It's a very complex, very beautiful film, as well as being funny and tense and exciting. So, Do you think um, Sonny is ultimately a utopian? Well, I think he's a dreamer. Mm. He kind of thinks there's an easy way out of the situations that he's in. And when he's faced with the fact that it's much harder than he realizes, he just lashes out and kind of breaks down. We should say that the real-life character in his youth was actually quite cute, but in his later life, he was not. <laughs> no body shaming, Sean. No, I'm not talking about body shaming. I'm talking about behind the eyes. <laughs> okay. What the eyes say. The eyes have it. So, ladies and gentlemen, watch Dog Day Afternoon. Watch all the seven films in our Male Gaze series on masculinities. If you haven't caught up with them, go back into the list because we're going to be away from you, sadly, for a few weeks. We are not going to be back until January 19th in 2017. But, Shawnee, during those weeks, what are we going to be doing non-stop? Oh, babe, you know what I want to do. I want to read. <laughs> we are going to... We are going to read. We're going to sit in bed reading. Yes. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't heard, just look back in the podcast feed because we, we're sure you're subscribing. You better be subscribing on iTunes and Stitcher. There is a little preview in which we explain to you that next year we are going to be doing a 12-episode series of literature. Literature with female heroines, a whole new slate of actresses, most of whom we've never covered, and we will be reading the books and then looking at the film adaptations, starting on the 19th of January with the portrait... Portrait. 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 Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, probably Brian's favorite author in the world, we will be looking... Not Proust was your favourite author. No, no, Henry James. We'll be looking From at... From one dyspeptic weirdo to another. <laughs> they both were very dyspeptic Babe, and sexual weirdos. Talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> we're all... We. Marcel, Henry and I were three of a kind. Ladies and gentlemen, I do sleep in a cork-lined bedroom. Um, did you know Proust slept in a cork-lined bedroom because he hated noise? That's great. Cork is a lovely wood byproduct. <laughs> Anyway, so we will be reading The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, and then we will be watching Jane Campion's controversial film adaptation, which stars not just Nicole Kidman, but also... Barbara Hershey. Barbara Hershey, Mary Louise Parker... Shelley Winters. Shelley Winters, and Shelley Duvall. And also some men as well, but definitely a whole cavalcade of women. Get reading with the books on the list. Have a happy new year. Don't drink and drive. Make, don't drink and read. Make some, no, drink and read. Don't drive drink and read. read. Don't drink and drive. Make some nice resolutions. Um, Fight fascism or abuses. Give to your, to your media institutions for an independent media. Give to charities that help the marginalized. It's up to us now, you know. Um, join some activist groups. Get out, out of the closets and into the streets. Yeah. And get your earbuds in on January 19th because you're going to hear a new episode from us. Happy new year. Happy new year. Yes, I do.